uh, I invite you to meet me in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. As you're turning there this morning, I have a question for you, uh, which is this. How do you think God relates to his people? How does God, the one who made all things, the one who created all things, the one who gives life to all things, how does this God relate to his people? The answer, of course, is through the covenants, the covenants of Scripture. Um, Perhaps you're familiar with what a covenant is, perhaps you aren't, uh, but a covenant uh, in the ancient world was similar to what we in our world think of a a contract or, or a treaty or a will. Uh, Each covenant establishes a basis of how a relationship is to work, the conditions for that relationship, and then promises and conditions of the relationship and consequences if those conditions go unmet. Uh, One of the most familiar examples we might have in in our day and age is the marriage covenant. Uh, A marriage covenant is different than a contract that you might have with Verizon or T-Mobile or AT&T, right? At least I... At least I hope your marriage is different than a contract with a Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile. It's a a covenant of two people coming together to form a family. And the Bible says this is uh, two flesh becoming one. Uh, Another example we have of of a modern idea of covenant is the the, the church membership covenant that we have at this church. uh, In which it stipulates uh, what the church will do for you and what you will do for the church. But let me give you a little bit of background uh, of why covenants is so important, whether you're familiar with this language or not. Uh, and here's the reason. The covenants is actually how we understand God relating to his people throughout all the scriptures. The covenants are crucial because they are the backbone of the story of the Bible. You see, the Bible isn't a random collection of laws and moral principles and stories here and there uh, unconnected. It is a story that goes somewhere. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of God's kingdom. And the story unfolds and advances through the covenants that God makes with his people. If we don't understand the covenants, we will not and cannot understand the whole uh, scope of the scriptures. Because we won't understand how the story fits together. Uh, The best way to see this is by quickly just reviewing some of these covenants in the scriptures. And we're going somewhere and we'll we'll land the plan in 1 Samuel chapter 12. But the first covenant that we see that God makes with his people is with Adam. It's with Adam. You see, God created Adam and Eve as, as priests and kings, as those made in his image to rule the world for God. They were to extend God's fatherly rule over the entire earth. That was the mission. That was the covenant that God created. As God's son and daughter, they would be confirmed in life and righteousness if they obeyed the Lord. But they would be cursed if they transgressed the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, there was a covenant of blessing and of cursing. And of course, we know how that story ends. They ate from the forbidden tree and experienced the covenantal curse that came with it. But by God's grace, the story doesn't end there. For the Lord promised to triumph over the serpent through the offspring of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And the rule originally given to Adam and Eve would one day be restored. The covenant that God creates with Adam where he will be their God and uh, they will be his people and he will be their God where he will walk amongst them will be restored through the offspring of the woman. The second covenant that we see in the scripture as history unfolds 
the, and as we see, the, the sin of Adam and Eve becomes more and more evident throughout the, the, the opening chapters of the Bible. Uh, we see evil and corruption permeate the world. And the promise uh, uh, of redemption uh, seems like a distant memory until we get to the time of Noah. There are only, listen, at the time of Noah, there are only eight righteous people on all the earth. Eight. The entire world, except for Noah and his offspring, were wiped out in the flood. God makes a new covenant with Noah, promising him that the human race won't be annihilated again until the plan of redemption through the offspring of the woman was fulfilled. Noah was in some ways, we can think of him as a new type of Adam, uh, on a new type of earth, and thus the creation covenant with Adam gets new life. Still, salvation would not come through Noah, because like Adam, we see him quickly fall into sin. And the fundamental evil of the heart, in the heart of human beings persists. You fast forward in the Genesis account till Genesis chapter 12. After Noah, the world again slid into sin. The Tower of Babel uh, in chapter 11 is a signature of this sin. It is in this dire situation that God, God calls one man Abraham and makes a covenant with him. The Lord promised Abraham land, land of Canaan. He promised him his offspring who we see come through Isaac and he promises that a blessing would extend across the whole earth. In a sense, Abraham was like a new Adam, and Canaan was to be like a new Eden, where God dwells with his people. But as the children of Abraham trust in the Lord and obey him, the promises would be fulfilled. At the same time, though, the Lord promised in dramatic covenant ceremony that the promise would certainly be fulfilled. God pledged that he would keep his promise, but he would do it through the obedient offspring of Abraham. And this brings us to the covenant of Israel. A covenant was also made with Israel after they were freed from Egypt by God's grace. Israel was God's son and Abraham's offspring, uh, and the means by which the blessing would flow to the whole world. These again were priests and kings, mediating God's blessing and rule in their world. They lived in Canaan, which was to be like a new Eden, a place where God ruled and dwelt in the midst of a holy people. The stipulations of the covenant with Israel are summarized in the Ten Commandments. And the Lord promised if the people, if they can keep God's word, if they cannot break the covenant, if they can remain faithful, then blessings would come. But if they disobeyed, if they violated God's prescriptions for how to live as God's people in God's world, they would suffer the consequences. Indeed, uh, he promises at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses to the children of Israel, right before they enter the promised land, he lists out all the curses that would come upon them, and it ends with a, with a promise of a curse that if they disobey God, they will be ejected from the land and sent into exile. So it's helpful for you to think, to always remember as you're reading your Bible, whether in church or at home or, or with friends, always remember where are you at in the story of the covenants? Because it's how we understand God relating to us, how God's uh, people relate to him. This will help you make sense of what the Bible is saying and what it isn't saying. It will help you in knowing how particular verses should weigh on you for certain applications. And where we're at in the story of Samuel then is within the covenant of Israel. They're in the promised land. They uh, have been given, uh, uh, given the land. Their, their, their command upon, from God was to, to extol the enemy from the land, to remove them from the land. And we see it throughout the book of Judges that, that sometimes they listened for a while and peace would come and then they would forget God. 
And then the curses of God would come. God would send an army to, to wipe them out or to, to, to give them into the hands of their enemy. Then they would cry out to God again, and then God would send a judge or, or a ruler or a savior, in a sense, to uh, redeem them. And then there would be peace in the land. This is the cycle of the book of Judges. Such that we get to uh, the book of Samuel, and now the people want a king. They want a king. So if you've been walking in this journey with us over the last few weeks and months, uh, you know that in chapter 8, the people have come to Samuel. They said, Samuel, we want a king to rule over us. We no longer want Yahweh as king over us. We want, uh, we want our own king, a king that will make us like the nations. In a sense, they are rejecting God and putting in place their own leadership structure. And so we see that, that, that God gives them what they want. They give, he gets Saul in chapter 9 and 10. Uh, we see Saul last week in chapter 11 where his first test as king uh, proved successful. So meet me in 1 Samuel. Uh, look back in chapter 11. Look at verse 14. This is after uh, Israel has won the battle, right? They've, they've cast out Nahash, the enemy. And they come, and then Samuel says this in verse 14. Come, let us go to Gilgal. And there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. You see, what Samuel is saying here is that, uh, he said, let's, let's get together at Gilgal, right? Uh, we've won the battle. Let's get all the people together. And he says, there let's renew the kingdom. This is language is important to understand what he's talking about. It will become very apparent as we move through the text, but in a nutshell, what Samuel means uh, when he says, let's renew the, co- the, the kingdom, is he's in a sense saying, like, let's remember again the covenant that we have with our God. Remember that he has given us the land. He has told us how to live as his people in his land. He's also told us the cursing that would come upon us if we don't. This is what he's calling them to. This is what he's renewing the kingdom here means. The covenant that God made with his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people who live in God's land. So Samuel is saying, it's at Gilgal that we will renew and remember. But that isn't all that Samuel has for the people. In fact, while the people are all gathered at Gilgal, we see that Samuel uses this opportunity to begin a speech with the people. And this speech is not just any speech. The language that he uses throughout chapter 12 uh, it becomes apparent that he's, this is courtroom language. Courtroom language. In other words, what chapter 12 becomes is a, is a showdown within the courtroom between God and his people. And remember, what was the basis for understanding guilty or not guilty? It's how well they kept the covenants. How well, how faithful have they been to what God has told them to do? Have they broken it or have they kept it faithfully? Look at verse uh, 1 in chapter 12, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Now, let's pause here for a moment. Do you all remember Samuel's response when the people came to him in chapter 8 and said, We want a king? Do you guys remember? It says this in chapter 8, he says, The thing displeased Samuel. He's unhappy with the people's request when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel goes and prays to the Lord, and the Lord says to Samuel this, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Remember, uh, what, what Samuel, when the people came to ask Samuel for a king, it actually makes him angry. 
And he prays to God, and God's like, give them what they want, Samuel. These people are rebellious as they've always been. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And Samuel, now having given them what they asked for, he, he draws them together, and he wants to clear the air with them. And he says, like, hey, 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 hey I've given you your king. Look at verse 3. He said, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, uh, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Do you see what Samuel's doing here? He asked the people, who, who have I ripped off? Who have I sinned against? Who have I done wrong to? Who have I oppressed? And they say, nobody. You see, while Samuel has all the people of Israel gathered, and as the leadership of the nation moves from the judges of Samuel to the kingship of Saul, Samuel wants all the people to realize one thing. He was a just man. He was a good man. He followed the Lord faithfully. He obeyed the commandments of God. In other words, Samuel's the good guy of the story. But Samuel isn't done. In fact, now that he's been cleared, uh, it provides a way for Samuel to, uh, uh, to prove that the Lord is also righteous in this. Look at verse 7. Therefore, stand still that I might plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazar, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of, the hand of your in, out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. In other words, what Samuel is doing is he's rehearsing for them. He's causing them to remember all that God's done for them. God rescued Israel from Egypt, gave them the promised land. But then they soon forget the goodness of God, they forget the grace of God. They begin to live their lives as if God does not exist. Or as if God does not matter. And so God then judges them for this by handing them over to their enemies. This, of course, led the people to remember God and to cry out to him for mercy. God then sends judges to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. So, so, so what's Samuel doing? He's showing that time and time again, God has proved faithful. He's showing that time and time again, God has delivered his people when they asked for his help. God has kept up his end of the covenant. covenant, he has played his part. Samuel is here showing that not only is he standing righteous and vindicated before the people, but even the Lord stands vindicated before the people. So now Samuel turns his attention to the people. Look at verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came uh, against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. You see, despite Samuel's faithfulness and leadership, 
and godliness and, 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 and showing the people how they ought to live before a holy God. Despite that, despite God's faithfulness, time and time again to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, despite all of that, there comes a threat upon the Israelites that they do not follow the pattern of how they should relate to God. You see, they no longer trusted in God. They wanted a king to reign over them in the place of God. They wanted a king instead. Uh, in other words, they wanted a king that they could see, that they could touch, that they could listen to, that they could hear his voice instead of the king of the universe. At this point in the, in the trial here, the evidence is now complete. Samuel's finished his closing arguments of the case. And everyone in the audience understood there's only one outcome. Samuel is innocent. God is faithful. But Israel, Israel is guilty and unfaithful. Samuel then urges Israel and Israel's king to then obey, the, obey God. Look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Remember what Samuel's doing here. He's, he's renewing for them the, the kingdom of God. He's renewing for them how they should relate to God. He's renewing for them the, the covenant. He said, and he says, now that you have this king, this doesn't really change anything for you, Israel. Both you and your king now must obey the Lord. Both you and your king must not rebel against the Lord. And here again, we see that there are covenant blessings if they listen, in verse 14, it says, if you listen, then, then it will go well. In verse 15, if you don't listen, it's not going to go well. As a matter of fact, the Lord will be against you. Samuel is innocent. God is faithful. But Israel is guilty and unfaithful. All that's left now is to see what the curse will be. They failed to keep up their end of the covenant. So verse 16, therefore stand still. See this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel, and all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die we have added to our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And so here we see in this passage that, that the judgment is coming upon God's people. He's given them a command. They have broke the command, and therefore the, the covenant curses pursue. A few things to note about this text. Uh, the, number one, the timing of the judgment. At this time of the year, during the wheat harvest, uh, there were generally no destructive thunderstorms. Uh, in fact, to have thunder and rain during this time of the season would cause significant damage and have long-term impact. Number two, Samuel makes it clear that the reason for this judgment was because they had acted so wickedly in rejecting God as their king and requesting their own king. They said, we don't want to go God's way, we'll go our way. Doesn't that sound familiar? There's a great irony, number three, in the fact that the people have rejected God because of a lack of trust in his ability to protect them, a lack of his ability to care for them. But here, we see God sending the elements of the world hurling towards them and acting as a divine warrior against which they now have no protection. 
Finally, this judgment on Israel leads the people to where they should have been the entire time. Notice the judgment of God is never meant to be final for you, friends. The judgment of God is meant to lead you to a place of repentance. That's where they end up here. They realize their wrongdoing. They understand that they've been indicted, and so they're left with only what they can do is, Samuel, please pray to the Lord God. We realize we've screwed this up. And what happens next is probably the most important part of the entire passage because we see Israel, God's people, rescued and restored. You see, Israel has sinned and judgment has come, but this is not the end of the story because God is a gracious king. Look at verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your kings. Just a a few points I want to point out to you here. I want you to see Jesus in this text, and then, uh, then we'll head out and get some lunch. Number one, even though the people had sinned, and they had sinned, they realized it, there was still a way of escape and redemption for them. Look at verse 20 again. Notice this logic. Notice what he says. He says, do not be afraid. You have sinned, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You see, you have turned from God to evil, but do not turn from God to evil. That's the logic. That's what he says. Most of us would expect the logic to be something like this. You have turned from God to evil, now turn from evil to God. But that's, that's not what he says, is it? He says, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. You have turned from God to evil, but do not turn from God to evil, is, is what he says. And this is gloriously good news, friends. This means that the people were not left in their sins helplessly. You might be here today thinking, there is no hope for me. Utterly lost in my sin and in my shortcomings. You might be here today thinking, I can't change. I've tried to fight this my whole life and I can't change. But listen, what Samuel is telling them, he's saying that you are sinners, but you do not have to remain sinners any longer. Even though the people had sinned, there there was still a way of escape for them. Number two, he says, do not turn to idols. Look at verse 21. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. These empty things that Samuel is referencing here is a means of idols. He says, don't turn. Some of, this, some of the translations actually have idols in there. He says, don't, don't turn to these things. Now, notice what he's not talking about here. He's not talking about some golden calf that we kind of look at in our modern day and just kind of laugh at. He's not talking about this little statue in a temple somewhere as that's being his idol. He says, don't turn aside after empty things. And of course, the context of the story of Samuel is that this could have been an idol of human leadership. They said, we don't want God's rule. We want our rule. We know what's best for us. He says, no, 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 like, that's an idol. Don't, don't turn after it. Perhaps self-rule. This, this should sound oddly familiar of our day and age in which all of us try to turn to what we think is right, what we think is good. And he says, that's an idol. 
He said, instead of, instead of trusting in God, we, we turn to empty things. And Samuel gives two criteria for what these empty things aim to achieve. Which can then actually help, like, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with a question, man, what, what's my idol? What's my idol? He gives you two criteria here that, that kind of help you. He says the first is the idols that do us good, uh, the things that profit us. So you might ask this, yourself a question, what do you think, friends, will make your life good? What do you think would make your life good? What would you answer that question with? And the other one he gives here, the second, is idols that stop us from being bad. He says this, uh, this idea of empty things that will deliver you. Friends, what do you think would stop your life from being bad? Any answer other than God to these two questions, Samuel says is useless. Useless. It will not do you good. It will not uh, prevent you from doing bad. It will not save you today or ever. Number three, and finally, God is making for himself a people. Look at verse 22. If you memorize scripture, this is one you should memorize, friends. Verse 22, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So you see, the thing that drives God's action, have you ever asked yourself, why does God do what he does? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why, does, why, does this, why is this playing out in my life the way that it is? Why is God acting the way he does? It's right here. The thing that drives God's actions, the things that moves God to act is his passion for his own glory. Notice that. He says, the Lord will not forsake his people. Why, Samuel? Why won't the Lord forsake his people? For his great name's sake. He acts for the sake of his own name. We see this in the New Testament all the time. Right? The, the Jesus uh, uh, comes and dwells amongst his people. And what, what does he say about God the Father? He, he is pleased with God the Father. And God the Father is pleased with God the Son. And both of them are pleased with the Holy Spirit. This means the reason God does anything is to show us how awesome he is. The reason God saves people, individuals, the reason why he's saving you and I today is because, not because you and I are awesome, but because he is. This is massively important. In making Israel a people for himself, he is pointing to not how great the people are, but to how great of a God he is. And then Samuel ends the entire speech with this warning. He said, but, but, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Remember, the story of the Bible is understood in terms of covenant. God and the people have entered into a covenant together. Israel was supposed to be the people who Adam was supposed to be. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, which is a list of curses that would come on the people of God, if they failed to keep the covenant, Moses says this in verse 64. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall fill and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt a place of slavery, 
a journey that I promise that you should never make again, and there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. At the end of the list of curses, that's where the chapter ends in Deuteronomy 28, at the end of the list of curses that would come if they failed to keep this covenant with God, Moses says at the end of it, you will lose the land, you will be exiled from the land which is exactly what Samuel says at the end of chapter 12 here. If you do wickedly, you shall be swept away. In the opening of this sermon, I told you about the covenants with Adam and the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham and, and now with Moses. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the development uh, move from the covenant of uh, Moses to the covenant with David. The covenant of David was the promise of victory over the servant and his offspring will come through a child of Abraham. But in this new covenant, a new feature, uh, a new part of the, of the covenant is revealed. This new feature is that the victory over the serpent would come through a king. The child of Abraham who will conquer sin and death will be a son of David. The promise of land and universal blessing will be secured through David's dynasty. The king then would be a new kind of Adam in a new kind of land. And for a brief time, it almost looked as if all the promises would come to pass during King Solomon's reign. If you read of Solomon in the book of Kings and read the Proverbs, you will see Solomon has this great empire. It looks as if God's about to set all things right. The covenant with David, however, had conditional and unconditional elements. If the kings transgressed, they would face God's judgment. And as the story of the Bible progressed, as, it, uh, as it, 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 be, it began to be told, it becomes evident that something is radically wrong with all the kings. Solomon wasn't good enough. David is not good enough. Saul, we'll see in a few weeks, he's not good enough. It, it's something within all of these kings that, that there's something radically wrong with them and the nation. In fact, the sin of the kings of Judah and Israel were so significant that it's at that point in the in the, the people of God's history, that they become expelled from the land. In other words, what Samuel has said about them being swept away, them and their kings, happens. Happens. Listen, friends, God is true to his word. God had pledged that the world would be transformed to a son of David. But if you read the dark ages of the, of the people of God's history, you'll see that the promise was going backwards. Israel and Judah were thrown out of the land in 722 and 586 B.C., What's going to happen to God's great promise? It's the story of the Bible. Israel's made a mess of things. It almost seems as if the promise of triumph that God had promised, that the servant had been, uh, the servant would be defeated, it looks as if this promise has been withdrawn. It looks as if the Lord, uh, the, though he guaranteed victory, would no longer serve out victory. Still, there was a problem with the covenant made with Israel. And the problem was not what was on the outside of the people, it was what was on the inside of the people. There was a cancer that resided inside of their hearts. They failed to keep God's commands over and over and over again. And because of this, they experienced the curses of the covenant. The Lord then, uh, he, he, he enacts a new covenant with his people. He enacts a new covenant with his people, which fulfilled the promises made to Adam, Abraham, and David. 
This new covenant, of course, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the true son of Abraham, the true son of God, the true Israel, the true David, the son of man, and the servant of the Lord. You see, Christ was the only one who kept the covenant perfectly. I don't know if you realize that. We, we, we say all the time that you know, Jesus had no sin. We say all the time that Jesus uh, had no evil thoughts among them. But he, he, he not only didn't sin, he also fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. He was the one who kept every law perfectly to its full extent. He was the one who faithfully loved and faithfully served God over his entire life with his whole heart. Friends, it was Jesus Christ alone who should have uh, enjoyed the blessings of the covenant, right? Remember, there's covenant curses and there's covenant blessings. If you, if you obey God's commands, you will be blessed. And if you fail God's commands, then you will be cursed. And Jesus was the only one who perfectly uh, obeyed the commandment of God in all things. It was Jesus alone who should have been the one to experience the covenantal blessings. R.C. Sproul said this, When on the cross, not only was the Father's justice satisfied by the atoning work of the Son, but in bearing our sin, the Lamb of God removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And he did it by being cursed. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus alone was the perfect law keeper, and for that he was cursed. For that he was stricken. For that he was afflicted for us. You see, Jesus took the punishment for all covenantal curses so that you and I could enjoy the covenantal blessings. The new covenant that God promised to make with his people. You see, while the people were in exile, while it felt like there was no way that God's going to actually win this battle, God sends some prophets to his people that, that begin to talk about this, this new idea of a new covenant They were familiar with the covenant of Moses and Noah and Abraham and David, but they begin to talk about this this idea in the wilderness, in exile. These prophets show up and they say things like this. From the Lord's perspective, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey My rule, Samuel, told the people of Israel that it pleased the Lord to make them a people for himself. These people could not keep their end of the bargain, exiled from the land. And so a new covenant is given that, you know what, it's not not that you're sinning that you can't keep the covenant. He says it's because your, your heart's bad. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. You can't do this by yourself. And so God says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. My commandments will no longer be wrote on tablets of stone, but on the flesh of your new heart. Why? Why does God do anything? Because it pleased him to create a people for himself. Titus chapter 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Friends, God's people know his voice. Once you hear the Father calling you, you must listen. 
Some of you might be here uh, and, and hearing the Father calling you for this very morning, for the first time perhaps. The Bible is clear. And I said, well, what do I, what do, I do? I feel, I feel like this thing to be true, that I can't earn my salvation, uh, but that, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. He's the free gift to us. What do I do? The Bible is clear that you must repent of your sins and believe the good news of Jesus Christ and follow him. You see, this is important. It's not just an intellectual decision. Right? We homeschool our kids, and we teach them that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And they believe this to be true, intellectually so. It's not the same thing with Jesus. You see, it's not just an intellectual uh, uh, decision that, yeah, I believe it to be true. Rather, what happens in that moment is that God actually removes your heart and gives you a new heart. He puts his Holy Spirit inside of you. And then you spend the rest of your life walking in this free grace that teaches you to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled lives, to live godly lives, waiting to see him face to face. The only way you and I relate to God, friends, is through his son, Jesus Christ. We bring nothing to Jesus. We have nothing, think about it, we have nothing to bring Jesus except all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing, all of our problems and all of our pains. Rather, we come to Jesus with empty hands of faith, believing that because Jesus and what he's done, we stand confidently in a loving relation with God the Father. If you are thinking that there are hoops you need to jump through, that you in some way have to clean yourself up, that you first have to stop sinning, and then God will accept you, and then you, uh, then, then, then you show that you truly don't understand the gift that Jesus is giving you. You see, we are loved and accepted because of the hoops that Jesus jumped through. We are loved and accepted because Christ has covered all of our uncleanliness. We are loved and accepted because Christ alone had no sin in him. And so friends, the offer is extended to you this morning. Believe in this Jesus. Believe in him. Stop trying to earn your way. to have, like, like, let me pause. This isn't in my notes. All religions, all religions begin with us and the problem. And they say we've somehow, somehow got to make it to God. If we make it to God, then we can get his blessings back to us, right? This, this, this N-shape uh, style uh, of relating to God, right? Remember, the, the opening question is how does God relate to his people? Uh, all religions in the world besides Christianity says somehow you've got to be good enough, you've got to do enough, you've got to clean yourself up enough, and then God will bless you. Then you will have the abundant life. Then you will have a satisfying life. Then you will have freedom. Then you will have all the blessings you've ever wanted. You say, well, why, why does all religions do that? Well, because we're all human. We're all made in the image of God, separated from God. And so we, we fundamentally know, like, like we fundamentally know that we're not right with God. Like there's a problem. Like there's something that has separated us from him. Whether or not we know the language of Christianity that calls that sin or not, it's, it is what it is. It's sin that has separated us from God the Father. So every religion is trying to earn something, trying to be a good enough person. Growing up, my father would say, uh, as long as our uh, good deeds outweigh our bad deeds at the end of life, then we know we're good with God. That's utterly false, utterly false, because Christianity flips all other religions on on their heads. Instead of beginning down here with us, it begins up here with God. 
You see, in all the covenants, right? In all the covenants, God is the one who initiates it. God is the one who reaches down to mankind. You see, it was God who created Adam and then told Adam how to live. It was God who uh, rescued Noah from the flood and, and, and said, uh, it, like, I will never annihilate you, uh, the, the humankind, again, uh, and then now live this way, right? It's God's the initiator coming down to us and then telling us how, how to live. We see this in Abraham, right? Like, God is the one who chose Abraham. Abraham was a nobody from a family of nobodies who would produce the person who would bless everybody. It was God who chose Moses, a murderer, living in the backside of the desert, hiding from the sins that he had committed. It was God who chose Moses and said, I'm going to use you to rescue my people and then tell them how to live. You see, the Old Testament, by the way, even Samuel talking to them, he's, he's not saying, hey, y'all need, to, uh, y'all need to straighten up and live right so, so you can be God's people. That's not what he's saying. God is the one who rescued them from Egypt. They already were God's people. They needed to know how, what it meant to walk as God's people. It was God uh, who used the prophets to tell, uh, tell the nation of Israel in exile that I'm going to one day, you know what, this isn't working out so well. Uh, it turns out you guys can't uh, actually uh, continue to be my people. So let me, let me fix the heart of the matter by fixing the heart. He says, uh, one day there will come a time where uh, God being the initiator will, uh, uh, will give a man a new heart so that they know how to live. See, it's U-shaped. And it was God, the Father, who sent God the Son to mankind to live amongst the earth, to, to live the perfect righteous life that you and I should have lived. And then now gives us free gift of grace. He gives us the new heart. He writes the law on our hearts. And now we walk as his people. Not because we've earned it. God is the one who initiates and does all of this through, through and through. Even our obedience, by the way, the scriptures would say, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Galatians uh, chapter one, Paul is talking, he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You who began in the spirit, do you now continue in the flesh? He said, no, no, even your obedience and living right before God is a gift of grace. So perhaps you're here this morning and the Lord is beginning to work in your heart in such a way that all that I've said seems like good news. Perhaps you've come in here with the weight of the world, the weight of being separated from God, and you're like, thank God there's good news here, and there is. Perhaps you walked in here unsure of how God could love someone like you, how God could accept someone like you. But now you're beginning to believe that God loves Jesus, that God accepts Jesus, and now Jesus is calling you to life in himself. And this morning, that's you. This morning, when we're done, and I'm in the back, just come grab me. Tell me about it. And then we'll spend the rest of our lives chasing down the goodness of our God and how we should live. We'll talk all about this and more. Let's pray. Father God, in order for the gospel to be good news, the bad news is that we have sinned, every single one of us, We all stand condemned already before you, unable and unwilling to actually save ourselves, Father. And as the text says this morning, it is for your great namesake and for your pleasure that you are saving and redeeming a people for yourself. 
And so, Father, Lord, it's only by grace that any of us are saved. It's only grace through faith that you work in and amongst us. Father, you've called us to preach the gospel, the good news to all people everywhere. And that in that, you will draw people out. You will draw people to yourselves. The sheep know the shepherd's voice, Father. And so I pray that even this morning, as you are calling men and women to yourself, as you're giving them new hearts, as you're putting the Holy Spirit within them, Father, Lord, that we would erupt in praise and thankfulness and thanksgiving to you today. For it is only by grace that we have been saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.